When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Each month, over 80,000 people download podcasts produced from the fevered mind of Royfield Brown. They cover a gamut of topics, like maps, politics, American presidents, history, the archers, Formula One, Jamaican culture, and Englishness. Go to wherever you get your podcast and type in Royfield Brown to discover a new favorite podcast today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, I'm Michael Brown, who's in a somewhat nippy, chilly, parky, as we say in England, East Bay. Today I am in Oakland. Now, today I'm speaking to the creator of The Race to the White House, which is one of the most accurate in predicting the outcome in 2020. It outperformed Nate Silver's 538 when looking at Senate races, and in 2022, it became one of the only election forecasts in the country to attempt to predict Senate primaries and got it right every single time. Today, I'm talking to Logan Phillips. Logan, thank you for coming on to the show. Hey, pleasure to be here. Logan, why is it that America is such a hotbed for polling, but why did you get into forecasting? You know, I was actually listening to one of your most recent podcasts and you talked about how America has much longer political seasons. And the consequences of our elections are huge. We have two parties, right, with dramatically different political agendas especially in the Trump era. And so I think people are very keen to see what's going on. The field is always developing. And so, you know, as long as there's people that want to see public polls, as long as there's publications that are willing to publish, they'll keep coming. And just between that and America's massive size and the amount of money that we have. For myself, the reason why I got involved was honestly a little like unplanned. I started this in grad school. I was studying foreign affairs, not American politics then which is what I had used to work in beforehand, right? And I had just taken a presidential campaign management class. And because I'm me and couldn't help myself, like when we had an assignment to create a campaign plan for a chosen Democratic primary candidate, the one I had was Biden. I wanted to figure out like how much should they invest in each state? How many delegates would they need to win the nomination? I went way over the top and built a primary forecast. Did really well. After the pandemic hit in New York City and everything shut down, I just decided to invest in it and make it a business. And really, I honestly just like when there's a huge unknown, I really like to try to solve the problem. Plus, I love politics. And, you know, and the stakes were so high in 2020 that I, you know, and such a dramatic impact on the fate of the country that I just couldn't wait for Nate Silver's model to come out in four or five months and had to find it for myself. And people seem to really like what I did. And I spent all 2021 and 2022 trying to build a bigger following and make a business out of it. And that's where I am now. You mentioned Nate Silver's at 538. Is that the gold standard in terms of? that look at polls and then forecast? I think so. I mean, they were ahead of the curve on doing this in a way that was public facing, you know, back in around 20. And they did fantastic early on. And then they're still great. You know, I, I 
I'd recommend people check out race to the WH.com, but not that they should avoid 538. I think recently, though, we've seen some others now that they're competitors. There's The Economist, who was a little more accurate than them in 2020. And then, you know, now there's Race to the WH, where we're now more new and up and coming. We have a record of calling races that I think is very competitive with everyone. And in 2022, we're probably just a touch better than uh, the rest of our competition. Without telling us all of your secrets, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, how much of this is science and is there any art? I kind of understand that you've got to look at a whole load of which can be tracked by numbers. But if you had to assign, you know, the element of art to it, there must be some, some level where you go, I'm going to lick my finger, put it up in the air, see which way the wind is blowing, so to speak. So how much is science? Is there any art in forecasting? Yeah, and when there's a lot of art, I enjoy it more, to be honest. So so what I do is I really do try to use the scientific method. I'll have a theory about what will predict elections. I'll test it relentlessly on, on decades of past elections, like for my new up-and-coming presidential forecast and going all the way to the 1800s. But that being said, right, there are some races where it's really hard to test your data on the past or, or fine-tune everything and see what's the most predictive because it's the first of its kind. You know, to give an example, we had ranked choice voting in America. You could look to European, but every country has their own political characteristics, especially often the U.S. And so trying to predict in New York City when there's 12 candidates running, how the voters are going to rank each candidate by preference or the same thing in Alaska. Well, now it's kind of more of a challenge. It was the same thing for the primaries because no one else had done it before that I could find. So I had to build it from scratch and sort of the crunch for time made me take more risk. And I feel like then you just have to try to use your political instincts to anticipate what's going on and read the room. Like, honestly, I think that was a big part of why we succeeded in 2022. I had a hunch early on right? Especially when I built my forecast and had to say like what would happen based off of who the potential nominee would be, that a Doug Mastriano was really going to underperform. And for those that don't know him, he was the Republican nominee in Pennsylvania for governor, my old state senator in Gettysburg, where I went to my undergrad. And this guy wanted to overturn the 2020 election. He was talked about how he should have the right to overturn voters or take voters off the uh, off the register rolls. Abortion would be his number one issue. And he also wasn't a good fundraiser. So the fundraising part certainly played in my model. But beyond the numbers early on, I was like, I'm going to put a hold on Doug Mastriano and say he's probably going to underperform by a few points compared to normal GOP candidate. Now I was ready to take that off. And I did take it off long before we got into the election, because then when we get more things filling in the gaps like polling, I'm going to assume that's going to be much more predictive than my hunches. But early on, I absolutely do try to read. And I think every time I did that, because I'm conservative on those types of things, because I, I have to be very, 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 very confident, it worked out like probably all seven or eight times. Interesting. Very interesting. And which leads us on to why did some pollsters, some forecasters maybe get things wrong in this cycle? The political winds are at Republicans' backs tonight because of all of this and more with less than a week to go until Election Day, according to analysis from Gallup. Look at this. A new, a new poll from the company found just 17% of Americans are satisfied with the way things are going in the country. That is the lowest satisfaction has ever been since Gallup started measuring it four decades ago. And the polling company's analysis shows the lower that number, the more seats the president's party typically loses in the midterm elections. For example, when satisfaction was just 22% 12 years ago under President Obama, the second lowest ever, Democrats lost more than 60 congressional seats. And a new poll from the Wall Street Journal shows one key group is dramatically shifting its support away from Democrats. Over just the past two months, nearly one-third of white suburban women say they flipped their support to the GOP. Listening to that clip, Logan, one of the factors which maybe made more right-leaning pollsters think that the Republicans were going to have this red wave, they said, was, was satisfaction. How do you map, how do you quantify for something like satisfaction and how that could actually push or pull a poll? I don't. Now, I might have considered it in another cycle, but to me, there was a clear indicator that suggested that was going to really lead you astray. Because put yourself in the shoes of the average Democrat, or frankly, even the average independent, let's say, that happens to like Biden, right? After January 6th, you're not satisfied with the way things are going in America. You're scared, and then you throw an abortion. That is not necessarily the measure of how people feel about the president or their party. It's about the way things are going in America, right? And so there's a lot of people who are 
are wondering if the country is going to be stable or not, if their vote is going to be respected, if there's a threat of rising political violence. And for those that aren't worried about that, they might be worried about climate change getting worse or about abortion and the Supreme Court overturning it. So you could be Joe Biden's biggest fan and still say you're unsatisfied. Now, clearly there are other problems like inflation that that bothered people, people concerned about the president's age, etc. But they were just looping in everyone there because I think we're at a point you know, worldwide, but definitely in America as well, where there's a lot of anxiety and people don't feel there's a stability, but it doesn't mean that they think it's Joe Biden's fault per se. And I think the other thing is, right, there, this video just, you can almost take it from every single cycle outside of the white suburban college educated woman, you, you know, you choose a different group, you can almost record it in press play. Because American politics tends to run, especially on midterms and on a certain type of tracks, right? No party outside of HW and, and Reagan have won three terms in a row since Truman was president. The midterms almost always go against the party in power. The question is just how much, but it's always bad. And this cycle, people didn't really trust giving the GOP power, right? Like they tend to vote against the party in power and get dissatisfied with them, but they have to trust the alternative. And in state after state, when they had a certain type of Republican candidate that they didn't, that was, you know, a little bit less experienced, maybe a bit crazy appearing, right? When they're talking about election conspiracies, weren't talking about issues that voters felt were relevant. They didn't trust them with that power. And because they didn't trust them with that power, a lot of them voted for Democrats who weren't necessarily thrilled with what Joe Biden was going to offer. So candidate quality mattered a great deal. How do you take out your own biases and let's say like a Herschel Walker or a Mehmet Oz, they're not good candidates. How can you legislate for that within your formula? Do you go, I think this guy's a bit wackadoo, I'm going to, you know, minus kind of like two points. Is there a formula for how bad a candidate actually is? Yeah, so there are definitely things we can use to track that. And it's not about election conspiracy, though. If I put that in my model in 20... 22 worked actually a lot better. I'm looking at things like, are they raising, able to raise money? And it's not if they're able to raise money from PACs, right? Because PACs will sometimes look to rescue candidates that are struggling, so that can kind of mess up your data. You're looking at, can they raise it from individual donors? And if they can't, that suggests they're really struggling with connecting with grassroots supporters, which Doug Mastriano was getting out fundraised like 18 to one early on. I think even not by election day, it wasn't that much different. So that was an early sign before we had polling, this guy's gonna form. You can also look at experience level. And so, you know, Dr. Oz had all sorts of different issues in Mastriano. He's, he's a guy who is charismatic. He is a great communicator. He's not as into the election conspiracies. His problem was that he wasn't from PA, right? And that's really, I think, what bothered voters. They didn't trust him to be authentic since he moved there right before the election. But he also, like Matt, even more so than Mastriano, he had no experience. Mastriano was a state senator. And that was a signal that my model used. So some of these things I'm telling you about now, this is my qualitative interpretation, which I can be more confident in saying based off the results we have. It is not the type of thing that drove my model. Mastriano was an exception because he was so extreme. I didn't do that with, let's say, Adam Laxalt in Nevada. I didn't do that with Dr. Oz, actually, either. You know, but Mastriano lost by eight, 17, 18% in Pennsylvania in an open race in the Republican midterm. So he was probably one of the worst candidates we've seen in the last 30 years. So takes a really special case because I exactly for the reasons you're saying I'm obsessed with not tr with trying to take my thumb off the scale. I don't want to mo move things based off my biases. Right. So I work really hard in testing in the past to make sure that it doesn't miss the left or right either way on average. Gotcha. What are the demographic trends that are shaping the U.S. electorate? What have you been able to determine? And then maybe how in the last six years, have you maybe had to subtly change your model? Well, it's only my second time, so I haven't had to shift it too much around. It's more just improving it now that I'm getting, you know, got a lot more serious about it after the 2020 cycle and trying to make it my main thing. But I would say that in terms of the demographic trends that are changing things, right? Like you have to look at state by state. Arizona and Georgia have a lot of people moving into those states for economic opportunities. Phoenix was for a long time the fastest growing city in America, and that has helped accelerate its shift. You also have a growing non-white population in states like Texas and Arizona. Now, you know, parties tend to adjust to do what they need to win. So it makes sense that as the country is diversifying, that Republicans have focused on trying to do a bit better with non-white voters. They're still at a big disadvantage that helps nullify the amount that Democrats will gain in a state like Texas. They're still likely to continue to make some ground, but maybe not at the same rapid pace they had over the last eight years before. 
This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. If you're in the audience, we ask you to raise your hands. You want to come up and ask Logan Phillips, who's a bit of a soothsayer, I believe is that his professional title. And he has a great website called The Race to the White House, which accurately has predicted just about most, if not all, races in, in the midterms. So we're really honoured to have him. If you'd like to come up and ask him a question, please raise your hand. If you're listening to this podcast at home, what you can do to get onto one of the stages is download the Clubhouse app and you can then be in the audience for one of the live recordings of. But Logan, let's go to your industry and see how accurate they think that the results were in the last cycle, which were the midterms. The midterm elections are mostly behind us. Many Americans may be wondering about the polls and their accuracy. In the final days and weeks leading up to Election Day, several polls had Republican Dr. Oz leading in the Pennsylvania Senate race, only to lose to Democrat John Fetterman. And in New Hampshire Senate race, where incumbent Democrat Maggie Hassan defeated her Republican opponent, Don Balduck, who seemed to be having a surge late in the race. And in Arizona, even as votes are still being counted, Democrat Katie Hobbs maintains a narrow lead ahead of Republican Carrie Lake. But that also differs from previous estimates. To break all of it down, we're joined by Larry Sabato. He's the director of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. Larry, thanks for being with us. If you had a report card for the polling and you're going to grade it for this cycle, what would you give it? Now, there were some states when where they didn't do a particularly good job. Actually, that was true both for Democratic victories and Republican victories. I would give uh, somewhere between a D and an F to the Republican pollsters who were clearly pursuing an agenda and who had Republican candidates up almost everywhere, either close to, tied, or above, and that was in cases where the uh, Democratic candidate won. Republican pollsters, would you give them a D or an E also, (laughs) and do you take your data from them? Well, you know, it's hard for me to disagree with Larry Sabato, who is one of the best guys out there and also one of the nicest people in forecasting too. So it's hard for me to disagree with him too sharply. So I'd agree with that. Republican pollsters, definitely you saw a lot having an agenda. Now, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit confused as to what parties gained from last second releasing polls that are really good for them. I get it when it's months out to fuel donations to your candidate, but it did certainly make the job of people like me a lot harder because we had to figure out how do you sort it out? And I think people have different methods. If you don't correct for bias for partisan pollsters, you're going to be in trouble. And I'll admit by the end, I had to call, well, I was saying audible, that's point of an American football term, making a last second change like the quarterback before calls the play, right? I had to make a last second change and really strengthen the bias for that because there was just such a ridiculous percentage of the recent polls coming from Republican pollsters. And I would have done the same if it were Democrats, that given there was a relative dearth of polling this cycle compared to last, it was really messing up the numbers and just single-handedly creating a lot of the shifts in these races. So I had to start being more aggressive because it was just clearly going to lead me astray, which, you know, is a harder decision than it sounds in retrospect, because at the time, you know, the polling kept missing to to the right, I mean, to the left, you know, historically so in 2020 and 2016. So it was a little nerve wracking, but you have to do your best to figure out what is the best way to give, you know, your viewers the most accurate read on where the elections are. And I think that change also helped us probably a few decimal point, points nationally in getting a little bit of a clearer picture of what was going to happen. But there was this predicted red wave by many pollsters. And this wasn't just a last minute thing. This wasn't just switch, switching the quarterback and just before you, you go onto the field. It, it, it always seemed to be like baked in, in the last month that pollsters were saying that Americans were turning away from the Democratic Party. And, and, and that kind of painting didn't happen. Why did the pollsters specifically get that wrong, but you got it right? Well, I'm not actually certain they got the movement wrong. It's kind of an unknowable thing, but I tend to think that even in cycles, like even going back to 2020, if there's a big shift in a month, it probably means that someone's doing worse. It's just maybe, you know, Republicans were going to flat out lose the popular vote a month and a half and go in instead, you know, they won it narrowly. But, you know, who knows? I could be wrong. Maybe the situation didn't change much. I, I think there's a few different reasons, right? One, 
if you take out the partisan pollsters, we had a pretty healthy miss in a lot of these races, like one, two, two and a half, three percent. Well, three percent is a bit much, but one and a half or two is very good for a pollster to miss just by that much. And so, you know, and, and it gets a little better when you average the polls like I do, right? I think the surprise was that it missed in the opposite direction for a lot of people because, you know, everyone just tends to overlearn the less the lessons of the last big event. I think that's just human nature, which as a forecast, you have to try really, really hard not to do. But for pollsters, look, if they missed to the left again, it was going to hurt really, really hurt their industry financially. There was big incentives to not have that happen again. So they probably were overcorrecting in a lot of ways and they wanted to get it right. And they missed in the same way for similar, arguably similar reasons both times. So that again was going to cause an overcorrection. Now my, my model didn't as much, right? We did underestimate Dems a little bit. Like we got every Senate race right, but one, but the one we got wrong was Nevada. We got every governor race right, but one, two, but the ones we got wrong were both Republicans that lost. Carrie Lake and, and uh, Tony Evers, the Democrat, ended up winning re-election, right? So, so the polling misses are still going to lead me astray, but we include a lot of extra other data like fundraising, the experience levels of the candidates, states partisan lean, how they did the last election, et cetera. And so I think the fuller picture helps negate to some degree polling misses. But, you know, as a whole, I, I actually think pollsters did a good job outside of the partisan ones this time, much better than they did in 2020 and much better than they did in 2016. So the red wave was a, a Republican talking point as opposed to anything which could be statistically kind of verified. Right. So couple more questions before I'm going to throw this out to, to the good people who are on stage. When you have, let's say, higher than expected young voters, how do you calculate for that in your model? So I don't do it by specific demographic group. I have played with it a ton. I have found that it generally does worse because it's really hard to be able to predict which part of the electorate is going to over or underperform. So here's what I do do, though. And this affects less with age, but more like racial demographic groups or education. When I'm simulating the Senate or presidential election or House, I'm looking at like what are the demographic components of each district slash state. And so I'm saying like, hey, if a scenario happens where we're off on young voters in favor of, or maybe not young, but Latinos in favor of Democrats or Republicans, and it's like a national miss, then you're more likely to see Republicans overperform in all these states or Dems overperform in all these states. And so every time I run, you know, 50,000 simulations of my model each update, it'll have ones where, where you'll see those overcorrections. But in terms of like predicting individual races, yeah, it's kind of hard to do because, you know, I, it was clear to me, right? And not just me, a lot of people that if young voters were going to turn out well, that make Democrats overperform. But I I can't say that's going to happen for sure, right? That's where the pollsters are going to miss often. Same thing in 2016 with white non-college educated voters. If you didn't have a model that said what would happen in that scenario, then you would underestimate the chance of a Trump upset in 2016, which is exactly what happened. Gotcha. All right. So I'm, I'm guessing, and please tell me that I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that the work for 2024 has already started with, with your model. What have you started and what more needs to be done in terms of just putting the model together? Or is it something which you are always tinkering with up until, let's say, the first polls will come in for the 2024 presidential election? Definitely going to be tinkering it for a long time to keep making it better. But I'm I'm all in already. I've done a lot. I've done some even before the cycle ended because my goal, I like to get stuff done early so I can then create new content on my site versus the backend models. But you know, the first thing I did, I launched this yesterday. I have a new polling average for 2024 Senate races, which I'm really excited about because what it does, I think it's the only place on the internet that you can find this. It shows you all the primary polls for every state, the general elections for every state, and the approval ratings, which is an early kind of a signal of a candidate is likely to over or underperform. Like John Tester in Montana, the Senate candidate for Dems, he has a really high approval. Christian Cinema has a very low one, although who knows if she's running her as a Democrat or independent. So, so, but on what I've done so far, I've been trying to see like, what can we take from the last few election cycles to better predict the next presidential? And the most interesting thing that happened in 2022 in terms of looking forward is Democrats did way better in the swing states and Republicans did a lot better in states like New York, California, or now Florida. And you kind of, that's kind of reverse, right? Because it's Democrats that kind of, I don't want to say waste their votes because every vote's important, but they have inefficient, their votes are inefficiently distributed because winning California by 30 points versus 20 doesn't do, give you any extra benefit for Senate or presidential race. But Democrat, you know, even as Republicans won the popular vote, Democrats did so much better in Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, literally just about every single swing state of Florida, which I don't think we can call that anymore. And the question is, is that going to be a signal for 2024 or not? And you can go both ways, right? And like my partisan lean for predicting how each state will vote 
relative to the popular vote. About 20% of it comes from midterms because sometimes it really is a canary on the coal mine like it was for Florida in 2018. Sometimes it's not, right? But if that was a signal, Democrats would have actually been able to win the Electoral College without the popular vote if the states voted the way they do in 2022 and 2024, which is a dramatic change. So we'll see if that ends up meaning that the Electoral College disadvantage isn't as strong for Democrats. So you, you've started the work on the model already, and you've outlined some of the things that, that you've done. And am I then taking it that on the morning of the election, you're still tinkering with that model as well? Oh, no, not by then. I mean, I, I'm still adding polls and everything, right? the latest data. But by then the model's pretty steady. And honestly, like now that I have this more developed, I'm always looking for ways to improve it, but I feel pretty confident about what it does now. The ones I'm probably going to be constantly taking with are the primaries models, because of primary models, it doesn't always work to have a straight jacket forecast. Let's say Donald Trump endorses someone with five days left and there's no polling since then. Well, I'm going to have to raise the value of endorsements like crazy for that race or use the most value, the most recent poll more than I would have normally if that's the only one after the fact. And so I can't just say, hey, polls are worth this much on this day, right? I really have to like nail it down for the specific situation because unlike general elections, primaries don't always follow the same steady rules. Endorsements. For me being a Brit, this is a uniquely American phenomenon. We don't have in British elections another politician endorsing somebody to be an MP or a celebrity doing that and whatever. Truly, what is that worth? My my feeling is, as somebody who is just purely someone who's kind of fascinated by the American political machine, is that historically endorsements were way more important than they are now. Is that just me having somewhat of a blinkered view? Or can you actually track a downward path of the power of an endorsement? Yeah, I think you're spot on. I don't look at endorsements for general elections, I do look at it for primaries because in general elections, voters are much more locked into one party or another. And even if they're not, they just offer such distinct platforms that they're usually going to decide it by other means. The candidates clearly value it. There's a reason why, you know, Fetterman ran ads with Oprah, why everyone wants to appear with Obama. He gets gives a great speech, gets people to turn out, et cetera. Now, but in the primary, you know, then voters are dealing with lots of they often don't know much about, you know, but if someone they really trust says, hey, I like this person, sure, probably means less than it did in the past. I think Trump's endorsement was uniquely powerful in in some states, at least for Senate races in 2022. Given that all his candidates did pretty poorly in the swing states with a few exceptions, it probably will be less valuable, though still valuable in 2024, because now there's going to be more of an electability focus on these primaries, I imagine, kind of like there was for Democrats after they were kind of freaked out by what happened in 2016 and electability became the central focus. Let's start throwing this out. I do have one more question, but I will really leave that to the very end. Mike Donahue, you're the first person on stage. Do you have a question for Logan Phillips? I have so many questions, but first question is the delta between publicly administered polls or publicly disseminated polls and internal polling. I understand, you know, if you've worked on the inside, you've seen internal polling numbers. Is there a significant delta variance in accuracy between the two? Yeah, that's a really great question. I haven't actually dealt with too much internal polling. Most of it has shown to me and then I can't even, I can't include it in my models, right? Because I don't like to list anything that I can't tell people where it's coming from. So I try to be transparent. There's two ways to look at it. If it's from a media publication, it's probably more reliable. Their goal is to get, show people what's going on in the race. Like if it's a New York Times or a Des Moines, Iowa register, like local poll. Yeah, they're not going to get it right every time. They're, they're usually, their goal is to inform people. If it's a pollster for a campaign, they have a reason for releasing the poll. They're not just doing it for fun. So it could be that they're trying to show a race that's closer so that they get people to donate, right? Saying, hey, we're not we're not only winning by 1% or we're losing. They could be choosing a poll that's showing them great. So they'll, on the opposite, say, hey, we got a chance here, right? So the polling that they have in their actual campaign that they're not releasing, right? The everyday one, when you average it out, it's just going to be so much better than the ones they're publicly releasing. Because at that point, their goal is to be more of a signal about what's going on. Although I should note that unless the campaign's really flush with money, they don't just do intern that much like horse race internal polling. It's usually a lot more about like what type of ads should I be running? What messages should I focus on? Uh, that can be candidates being authentic too. It's not always putting your finger to the wind. Sometimes it's like, oh, well, I've been working really hard on trying to make housing affordable, cutting taxes and fighting human trafficking. Which one of these messages should I talk about and talk about my record, right? So maybe human trafficking is your number one passion. Voters aren't focused on that this year. So you're going to talk about, you know, your work on trying to lower the price of affordable housing. Great question, by the way. Listen, Mike, you got Logan to say that your question was great. I asked him about two dozen 
I didn't get that that thumbs up. So you, Mike Donoghue, <laughs> are allowed to ask Logan another question. Go on, question number two, mate. So when I have been fortunate enough to work on congressional campaigns, price for implementing polling was really prohibitive. And unless you're in a district, forget about elections lower than district level, unless you're in, in a district that has some national or even regional visibility, you're not going to get the media footing the price for any of the polls. And sponsoring polls is really prohibitively expensive, especially if you're not receiving massive amounts of funding from your organization, your party. My question to you, and my understanding is that by all counts, that cost is not diminishing. It's harder to get a hold of people. It's hard to get valid results and your, your spend per valid result is always seems to be increasing over time. So I guess my question to you is, do you see that trend continuing? And if so, is there anything we can do about it? Because I think it's a beneficial tool that hopefully more people should have access to. And then I guess the question also is runs into, by that measure, if polling itself, if direct voter outreach polling is, is too expensive, do you ever see a point in time where we, we start relying on secondary data points to indicate voting outcomes? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say, Rafael, you asked many great questions. It's like my, my, my right. inner teachers, right. when it's someone else calls in the room, you know, I have to give them some credit, but I promise I'm not negating the quality of your many good questions as well. So, you know, you're right. Polling has gotten more expensive and it's harder to reach people. And I think every single one of us can say from personal experience why that's the case. If you think about it, right. I like, cause I'm such a helpless extrovert, especially in the pandemic, answering random calls. But I don't do that anymore or rarely ever because it's almost always a scam when I don't know the number, right? It's someone trying to trick me into buying something, which is obviously not going to work, but it's very annoying to get that all the time. And so I think these scams, you know, let alone all the cold calling that increased in the last decade, like we've seen the amount of people responding to polls has radically dropped like every two years. So polling is getting more expensive. That plus people trusting the polling industry less led to way less polls this time around. And yeah, I think we're going to see more polling misses. Probably not as bad on average as 2020 and 2016, Maybe the two worst since Harry Truman, but pretty, pretty bad. I'm not sorry. I think you're still going to see some pretty wide berths every once in a while. So I put that all in my model. I've just believe in having more uncertainty. I give Dems like a 30% chance in the house while everyone else had it at like, well, not everyone. Most had it like 2015 or so, 20 to 15. Cause I just think that, yeah, we got to raise the odds of an upset here. And, you know, for me, it was like, oh, if Dems did 1.8% better than the polling was suggesting they would be on track to win the house and do as well as that nationally. So they didn't, but I just think that's the healthy thing to do. Same thing from a presidential. We're going to have a lot more rooms for upsets because it's going to be harder, harder to get these. And so, you know, hopefully for people as if, if we have less polling, things like my model will help because the goal of it isn't just like to play ESPN for politics. It's to help people understand what races are in place so that when they come to my site, they know they want to get engaged and volunteer where to do it. And if they're just looking to understand what's going on, we can make our messy democratic system a little easier to understand just on, just on that kind of espnization of, of politics is that a reasonable jive to point at your industry because you are kind of looking at the runners and the riders and the one thing if i've got anything from what you've said is that just there is so much money in american in the american political system so hence you have these kind of sub industries is that an accusation thrown at you guys there's a certain level of, yes, intelligence, but also entertainment or educa edutainment at your industry. Is, is that a fair one to make? Sure. And I, every day I'm working on my site, I have it in my head that like, I can't let this be ESPN for sports. I have a purpose here. My purpose is to make it as easy and accessible as possible, possible to understand democracy because I like the game of politics. That's part of why I do this. I also really care about the results. But I have to make sure that's not what, what's driving me because it's easy to, especially with the cycle being so long. And I think when you're watching especially TV news, like it does feel like what ESPN felt like a decade ago, right? They took some real signals. ESPN's numbers were great. The media numbers were getting worse. They made it more exciting. They had the shouting tables, you know, of, of you know, experts and pundits yelling at each other. I think they've done a little less of that because it was clear it was not good for democracy. So they've kind of railed it, reined it in a little bit, but it's definitely a problem. I think I forgot the first part of your question though. So if you don't mind, I, I know I missed half of it. Ah, listen, you, you've, you've done a great job. Don't worry, Logan. We've got many more people on here to ask questions. Terry Sfink, over to you. Hi. Thank you, Roland. I have two questions for you, if I may. One is about the demographics of the ethnic votes the Hispanic uh, turnout and trends. So I would like to know about that. 
And the second one is also how big was the crime issue and how did it affect or it will affect or affect what's going on? All right, good questions. I like them too. So I would say first on Latino voters in particular, right? Republicans have made this a big priority. They kind of snuck on Democrats in Florida, which look, it was, it's no common, it's no hidden secret among people working, you know, my friends working in Democrat politics that the Florida Democratic Party was poorly run. Now it's no secret among anyone because of what they've done since 2018, which has been an absolute disaster. They should not have snuck up on them that Republicans were working so hard to win Latino voters and doing Spanish ads. But given that they didn't really respond much, now they're in, I, I mean, Miami, I think they might have flat out lost. I was so focused on the rest of the country when it was clear Florida was gone immediately into that election night. Then I don't even know that one for sure. However, elsewhere in the country, Democrats only lost like a very, very small amount of ground of Latino voters, especially in many of the key swing states like Pennsylvania, Arizona and Nevada. Some candidates actually gained ground. So it might have been like half a point or a point, which is the type of thing Democrats can sustain, especially as that population gets bigger. It makes all the sense in the world that that trend would happen. Why? Because American political parties are really, really good at staying relevant. Our elections are so much more competitive. They do kind of run like a machine sometimes. And while the primary voters are now, especially on the GOP side, sometimes leading the party away from, you know, the ideal type of candidates and strategy, you still have this apparatus that knows this is where we need to spend our money. And, you know, on the other side, though, Democrats are actually gaining with white voters. And that's helping them overperform. And honestly, having a little bit more racially diverse support is probably a good thing because for these parties, because I remember, I don't know if this is true still, but back in 2009, I saw the, you know, a study that showed that when black voters supported a policy, it became less likely to be passed if that's all you knew about it, right? Because only one party ever cared or tried to win their support. And the you know, I think pre-Obama, let's say, Democrats didn't always have black voters back as much as they would say they would, right? So that's the type of thing that happens when the support's only in one area. It also leads to just because of why a right voters live, Democrats to underperform the electoral college. And I think it's good when both parties do roughly similar with their popular vote performance in Senate presidential elections, et cetera, right? So I think those are both good trends for that reason, because you want to have a GOP that's actually going to care about non-white voters, and they're not going to care it's until it's in their interest, in my view. I hate to say it, but it's true. Politicians often act within their own interest above all else. You'll find plenty of exceptions, but they are the exceptions. They are not the majority, sadly. And then your second question was about crime. Well, that's a really yes. good question that's yes. hard to answer. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I just said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great. I know I can be verbose. So once I hear something, I got to stop for a sec. <laughs> so on crime, Possibly, <laughs> because, you know, in New York, that was the issue that Zeldin hit every day and Democrats did worse there. Now, I can't tell you that with certainty because we just, you know, I can say on the abortion issue and the democracy thing, it's so widespread with individual candidates that were really bad on it. They did worse, right? On the crime one, you know, there are places where they hit on it that they didn't do that well. I mean, Wisconsin, Ron Johnson made it all about crime. He only won by 1%. He did a lot better in a similar cycle in terms of how Senate and House Republicans did in 2016. And, you know, he, he did a lot worse this time around. So I don't know if it worked for him, right? It um, could have just um, been that Democrat, the, like one theory going around is Democrats cool and independents who maybe lean left or are in the middle, but were upset with Republicans' rightward shift on cultural issues and some of their anti this The Republicans who did it, not all, that were had the anti-democracy going on. They were in mostly in swing states or red states. You might have had lower turnout by Democrats in places like New York who were less energized, and that's why Republicans overperformed there. Or it could have been the crime and they thought that, you know, the Democrat politicians weren't connected to it. And sometimes when a politician or political party dominates a state, they get a little lazy. Their eye, ears are a little bit less in tune to what's going on because they start to think winning is always going to happen and they do worse. Like the GOP arguably did in Kansas and overplay their hand on abortion. So, so there's a lot of different explanations. I do think crime was helpful for the GOP. I do not think it was a silver bullet. I don't think it's a silver bullet for future elections either. I do think it definitely was a net positive. It's just the question is how much of a net positive was it? And I don't know the answer to that yet. Thank you so much. That was good. Aaron Fisher, your question, sir. Thanks, Royfield. Yeah, I just want to quickly note that I really wish that we would retire this idea of the Hispanic vote or the Latino vote. I know it's a racial category that exists, but it's essentially meaningless to lump together like 10th generation Mexican-Americans in the Rio Grande Valley and Cuban-Americans in South Florida and, you know, recent immigrant immigrants from Central America and California, like these are not people who have a lot in common. And if you have friends across those communities, you understand just how 
different those experiences are and how little they, they, they have to do with each other. I did want to ask a question, which is something that I think a lot of people overlook when it comes to polling, that underlying all polls is essentially a modeling of who's going to turn out. So for I know this is an international podcast, so unlike most other comparable countries, the U.S. has relatively very low turnout. So in a midterm election, we consider it to be very high turnout if we approach 50%, which would be considered sort of an abomination in most other countries who have comparable democracies. And my question is this. So particularly right after we've redistricted, right, we've redrawn the lines all around the country, and we've seen a phenomenal amount of human movement because of the pandemic, both in terms of people moving and also, unfortunately and tragically, you know, due to people dying. How much can we look at these polls and see, you know, the various biases where essentially polling moves from the sort of the science of calling people and weighting averages to the art of kind of divining who's now living where and who's motivated enough to turn out who might not otherwise would have been. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. Just, just on your first point, I think it's a fantastic point about Latino vote voters across America. I will say, however, and this does cut a little bit against it, in 2020, in just about every county in America, Democrats did worse with Latinos. That year was a big shift. And I think this year, they that this time around, it was a lot less true. So while there are definitely different ways that voter different based off of, you know, how many, how much time they've been here, what, you know, what generation they are, what state they're in, you know, what their just has a huge impact. We did see movement as a block in 2020. So I think there's some common thread there, even if it's often exaggerated for simplicity's sake. And hey, it's a good thing to be aware of. And I was oversimplifying it. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Okay. So on your other point, yeah, that is one of the theories you could use for looking at some of the states where there are bigger messes. There were a lot of people that left New York. I was one of them. I didn't leave it because I didn't like New York. I still love the state. I just was finished of grad school afterwards. But uh, people all over the country were leaving because frankly, I can tell you why, having been in New York, New York City's phenomenal city is a great place to be. It feels very alive. It is not a fun place to be when the city is entirely shut down because now you're in your much more expensive per square footage than probably anywhere in the country except possibly San Francisco while you don't get to do anything because it's shut down, right? And so it is just made people want to get out. And it looks like some of those voters might have been, you know, more mobile, often young voters who might have been moving to places like Arizona or, or Michigan, right? You also had a lot of people moving to Florida who like the lax COVID policies, who are leaning a little bit right. So that probably had something to do maybe with the misses in those states more confidently on Florida than than New York. That's a very hard thing for pollsters to be able to do, right? Considering all they're up against with the low response rate and the demographic misses, I, I honestly think they did a great job when we're talking about like the nonpartisan pollsters. Thank you for that. Great question, Aaron Fisher. Binji, now we do have a few people to get through on stage. So I'm going to just ask that you put your question in a concise way. But then also, dare I say, Logan, your answer, then we can rattle through everybody before the end of the hour. So, Sounds uh, great. Ben Benjamin G. Thanks. So very briefly, I am curious to your impression of voting patterns with respect to self-interest, versus interest in society. If we look at like low taxes as a priority, an example of like self-interest and supporting healthcare or education as a driving force for society, do you have any insight into those particular metrics? Yeah, I would say it's a hard question to nail because sometimes the economic policies can be what people believe in for, or is best for themselves as well. But I think it's pretty clear that cultural shifts or cultural disagreements have overtaken economic ones in recent years, you know, in 2012, 2016 and 2020, or not 2016, 2012, 2018, 2020, and 2022 voters. I'm not sure about 18 on that voters prayer said they preferred Republicans on the economy. Um, you know, and in 20 and 2022 Democrats and 2012, they did a lot better than you would expect given that, right? Because normally that's the kiss of death. If you're losing on the economic issue, you've lost the election. Now you might not lose it by a lot, but you're usually going to lose the election. But now Democrats are starting to win on a lot of the cultural issues. In 2012, it was, hey, Obama cares more about me, even if Romney's going to handle it, manage it better. So I'm going to choose him. In 20. 
22, it was, well, I don't like where they're trying to shift the country culturally on the democracy and abortion. Of course, this is different in every state with the unique dynamics of each race. So a lot of these independents swung to Democrats. In fact, Republican turnout was actually really good in these midterms. It was probably on track for a little bit better than average. The thing is, though, that normally the party in power loses independence by like 10, 15, 20 points. Democrats won independent voters by 1%. That is an enormous shift. So you can see that they were turned off on these things. And I think it had more to do with society, given, again, we saw that people thought they were a little bit better on the economic message. Now, you know, Democrats tend to campaign on policies that are a little closer to where voters are, but Republicans have the whole business management. That, that's how a lot of voters view them as like, oh, they're going to be good on the economy, even if I might disagree with them on some things about tax rates or or spending, right? Democrats have the empathy advantage. They have the economic management, Republicans have the economic management advantage. So I guess to a degree, in terms of who's going to be better for you, that also balances out a little bit as well in the polls. Great, great answer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Uh, just, just very quickly for everybody that's in the room, this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic, which I've been doing for some eight years. If you wouldn't what? mind sending me some... So sorry, I was talking on mute. So sorry about that. To everybody that's in the audience, this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic is a podcast I've been doing for some eight years, looking at US, primarily US and UK politics compared to contrasted. We are going to have a room tomorrow where we're looking at the Iranian uprising. And I'm blessed to say that I have an academic and also a, a, a pundit who really does know Iran inside out who are going to be on the stage. So please, uh, if you haven't done so already, join the club mid-atlantic club so when i go live with that room you will be alerted another thing you can do if you are in the audience or even the people on stage if you haven't done so please click on the link above and please write us a review and preferably it's going to be a positive one five star review would be would be most awesome one of the one of the great currencies of being a podcast actually is itunes reviews and why for the life of me for the last year plus i haven't been routinely pinning the link at the top of these rooms, heaven only knows, but it really would mean a lot to me if you'd spend a couple of minutes and write a, a review because it means that more listeners get to be exposed to, to Mid-Atlantic and then will basically come through onto the stage. So the link at the top, hit, give, that a, uh, give that a hit and then basically write a five-star review. Oh, you know what? If you think you only deserve four, three, two or one, just be honest and be true to yourself. All right, El Norma, your question, sir. I'll try to be quick on my questions. First question is regarding Abby, the top. Abby, let me quickly just jump in just so everybody gets in. Just make it one good one. Okay. Thanks, uh, Abby. I, my question was about the top of the ticket candidate and the effect that has on the rest of the, the, the ticket or uh, the trends with splitting the tickets. How, how in this last cycle did the top of the ticket candidate affect the down ballots? I did I did have a quick one. I just wanted to ask him about suburban moms as that thing got targeted. And do you believe that maybe that needs to be broken down as suburban 
and moms in two different categories because the message may be different to those two groups. And that was it. I'm done. Yeah. So, so on the second one, we're going to get a lot more deep dive data than we have right now. So my impression is the Democrats did quite well with suburban moms. I think they also did terrifically well. This is a different group of white, not with white, with voters that were women that were single even more so, where they won just by huge margins. And I think you can probably tie that to Roe as a big part of it. But Democrats did gain with that group a lot in 2020. You know, Biden, Trump gained with not with white voters who don't have a college degree with big margins and Democrats made up for it in the suburbs with. These are three different groups. They're not all the same, but they all are ones Democrats have gained with and they have some degree, but not far from perfect overlap. White college educated voters, suburban voters and white co- and suburban women, right? or women in general, have all been gain areas since, you know, in 2018 and 2020. And from as far as I can tell in 2022, I kind of forgot the first part of the question because my mind got focused on the second. I I asked about the down, the down ballot being affected by the top of the ticket. And oh, that's, that's a good question. It's discussed all the time. It's really hard to say because like, you could say like when Georgia, right, Brandkamp did a lot better than Herschel Walker. And I think no matter where you stand on the spectrum, it wasn't that hard to see why. You could say, oh, Kemp might have pulled him over. Or you could say that Kemp would have won by more if Walker wasn't on the ballot, but more people turned out, right? So the bottom of the ticket, whatever you want to call the bottom, could potentially drag the top down to just as much. I do think Tim Ryan in Ohio is probably the best example because Democrats won three close Ohio races. I guess one of them wasn't close, but in theory was supposed to be going in. And he gave Democrats a reason to turn out because he was polling pretty close and keeping it competitive and ran a great campaign, even though he lost by six. So he probably gave people who were saying, oh, we keep losing everything in Ohio a reason to turn out. But other than that, other than in the states where this is a reason for voters that would just feeling a little hopeless to not go out, I tend to think it's probably a little overstated. But it's kind of proving like you only have one universe that we can test this. It's ours. I can't tell you what would happen if you swap out the candidate for another one. Right. We can only guess at that. Thank you. Good Thank question, you, Abby. And, and well done sneaking in your second question. Ranking. <laughs> Marshall Rankin, you have the honor of asking the last question. Go for it, sir. Sweet. Well, my question is rather simple, and I'm not sure if you'll know anything about it, but you were mentioning Latino voters. I was curious what you thought of the performance in the Rio Grande Valley by Monica de la Cruz and the GOP down here. I was curious if you thought it had, if it was changing anything, if it was just a, if it was a canary in a coal mine for change, or is it just one area that, you know, has an issue and they've, they've moved that Hispanic populace, not that they're gaining with Hispanics. I'm just kind of curious what you think. Yeah, I think they're specifically gaining with Hispanics in South Texas. And there's a reason why, you know, the GOP, you know, they're not the only party or state to gerrymander, but Texas is one of the more extreme ones. They basically locked the race at the map as is because I think they're freaked out about Democrats' gains everywhere. The one exception, the three compet- only three competitive races in the state were all in South Texas because Republicans think they're going to gain there, right? So they're like, oh, maybe we can gain a seat or two here. And the other seats, maybe one of them get in play by the end of the decade, but not before then even if Democrats make massive gains. So I do think that those specific Latino voters are a little bit more conservative, a little bit more winnable for the GOP and their progress there is real, you know, but sometimes the degree that Republicans do well in Texas, this cycle, I think is a little overstated. The real thing is that Democrats didn't gain more ground statewide, right? If you're looking at how they vote relative to the popular vote, which is a good measure to say like, hey, you can then compare a D plus eight to an R plus eight cycle, right? It's how you vote relative to the national. Texas didn't actually move towards Republicans. It basically stayed put, moved 0.1 towards them, which is probably a victory for Republicans because some cycles it's moved 2% towards them. But, you know, as a whole, they're kind of holding even. That's happened some of the past few cycles. If it happens in another, that means that, you know, purple Texas is a lower probability. I don't think that'll happen in 24, but it's certainly a very real possibility. So I'm in Nevada and was dealing with the, the cluster F here with our vote counting and our present law, which allows that ballots to be postmarked on election day. Basically, we won't know full results till the following Saturday. And then with curing the votes, it went into Tuesday of the following week. It's not significant unless it's very close races, which we actually had very close races. So there's a push now in the state to try to change that, that policy and that law in order to not run into the same counting problem that we had. And just your thoughts on it and generally also with the election results. I know that people were polling for Laxalt pretty close up to the day of the election. So anyway, just those are my questions. 
Yeah, great questions. Well, you know, Nevada was the one Senate race I got wrong. And I knew going in that I probably had it wrong when I saw John Ralston and Larry Sabato, who had the clip from earlier. Because <laughs> I think I had I think I think had him at Mas- Cortez Master like a 48% chance. And I was like, oh, man, well, I have to stick by the forecast. But uh, that's one where I wish I could have put in an extra two points for Dems or something at the end. But yeah, I think that the choice there is a balance of values, as it often is in politics. You have to decide between do you want quicker election results and a cleaner answer, or do you want to make it easier for people to vote and make sure no one gets left behind? And it's not an absolute in either direction, but especially if Nevada votes for ranked choice voting, which might happen next cycle, we'll see, then it's going to get even longer, right? So maybe there's a compromise solution. Lombardo seems like a pretty reasonable more bipartisan Republican than average. And, you know, we'll see if the Democrat led, I think the Democrats lead the legislator, right? We'll see if they're willing to play ball and have a compromise of maybe allowing more early voting, sending the mail ballots earlier, but to compensate, you know, accepting things a little bit more tightly, like the day before, if it's like postmarked, let's say the day before the election or two days before to speed it up, maybe that could work. But, you know, it's probably ever so slightly against Democrats' interest to do it. So I don't think they'll play ball unless they're given a good enough package to make up for that. Yeah, it would be here clearly going against their interests. And there's an added factor of the state Democratic Party that every one of the legislatures on federal has moved away from. And and that's that's a whole other problem here. So there's not a cohesiveness within the state party. But but probably there's a big push generally in the state, I think, on a bipartisan that that people are we're, we're just really dismayed with how that counting went down. Yeah, it would be nice to know the results early. I got to tell you, we're lucky that New York or California doesn't decide these elections because California takes like a month. My (laughs) other part of that, we were talking about demographics before, and I wanted to ask you about the Asian vote, because in this community, it's a very large Asian percentage. And we saw the needle move more, more red on the Asian vote this cycle here. And I was just curious your your take on that. I think Republicans did gain some ground with Asian voters. I think that Democrats overperformed because of some of the Kung flu style things that President Trump was doing. That's really hard. If you if Latino voters can get grouped into Latino too much, which they are, Asian voters is even more so because it's such a diverse group of voters, you know, from, from Indian to Southeast Asian and people different people will decide whenever they're in considered Asian or not, right? A lot of Indian Americans won't consider themselves Asian. So it's hard to say as a collective group, and we just don't have the precision of polling to get more in depth than that. But I do think that Republicans gained. And if they choose Trump again, they're probably going to lose that ground. If they choose someone else, you know, who doesn't do some of the, you know, right identity politics, they'll probably do a lot better. And one last follow up on that, and I'll leave you alone. Do you think that the Harvard case may have had some effect and some sway on that Asian vote? I can't tell you about it in Nevada, but I can definitely tell you that in New York, there was a big frustration among Asian voters that for some of these high schools, right, they're trying to find ways to get more black and Latino voters in, which is a, a, a good goal. But the problem is, you know, you had some explicit goals of lowering the population of Asian voter of Asian students. And you had some really nasty quotes that came out from some education officials and that really bothered Asian voters in New York City and the surrounding area. And I think that definitely cost Democrats there. I don't know if that was a nationwide phenomenon, but I think that's part of why Democrats did worse than they normally would have in such a close national election in a lot of these House races and in the governor race. Logan, super appreciative of the time that you're giving here for political nerds like myself. It's just a it's just an awesome discussion. Over your career, which call do you think you were sort of completely was a swing and a miss? And do you know why in retrospect? And then conversely, which call are you absolutely most proud of? Yes, yeah, a great question. I would say I almost had a historically bad call. God on damn it. Mike does it again. How comes, Mike, you're asking all the questions that I should be asking to get that response? I had a big miss, almost of historic proportions. At least in my model, going back decades with Lauren Bobart, who, you know, part of what I hope to do is to help people donate to the races where they can make a difference. And so it's like, oh, you might not like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but she's going to win. I think Lauren Bobart was quite in that camp. I thought maybe in a 2018 blue style way they had a shot, but <laughs> Democrats almost did it. I was one of the biggest overperformances I've ever seen. I had it as a safe race, and I try not to have anything safe unless it's really safe, like less than 5% chance of winning. And my probability is already a little generous. So it was probably more like three or two, but they came within a few you know, decimal points there. And it shows that, like, I would say the 
the defining part of why my model kind of did better was like it was looking at all these signals of candidate qualities to say he would over and underperform and Bobart was one to be worried about, but I didn't expect it to be anywhere near to that degree. It also shows that Colorado shifting hard to the left, you know? Republicans had hoped that 2020 would be the worst they'd ever do when they lost it by over 10, but it's not the worst they're going to do because 2022 is even worse. And I think that state is probably gone now, even more than Florida has gone for Dems. I think that state is like properly, properly gone. And they might only win, be able to win governor races when they just have a great candidate. Oh, and then the best call. Yeah. Oh, that's, this is kind of an obscure one, but I think it's the one I'm most proud of was the New York mayor race, right? It's probably a few people followed on my site, but I had to figure out it's the first time I've ever done one of these hard, unique style races, kind of like the primaries are, right? I relish those types of challenges. And so there were 12 candidates. And if ranked choice voting to predict it accurately, you have to predict like how, who are, who, who are they going to rank for their other five for each of these 12? What's going to happen in every scenario based off who's eliminated? It was absolutely crazy. So, and then doing that over figuring out a way to somehow design a forecast that could calculate all that stuff over, you know, 50,000 Sims every day. It wasn't easy, but we ended up nailing it. I think I got within 0.1% when we got to the final three candidates in terms of where that support would be. And I was a little further off. I think it was off by like 0.9 or 1% or something. But in the end, like I had, you know, I pretty think Eric Adams winning wasn't that big of a deal because I think most people thought he was clear front runner, but getting his margin being a lot closer than people thought was really cool to see. And it was because I picked up that the most likely final matchup was going to be the more moderate candidate, Catherine Garcia. So I just love the challenging ones. I love doing the Alaska ranked choice. I think I was off by 0.1% for the Alaska house race as well. I seem to do better when the race is weirder because I just like, it kind of gets my brain going. So uh, actually, uh, I was going to ask yeah. you about like Alaska and uh, kind of ranked voting. You know, how different is that equation? Is that model that you have to build for that? Wildly different because normally you're reflecting how voters' partisan choices are going to go. Here I have to say, like between these different Republicans, let's say, or Democrats, how are they going to vote and what's going to happen in alternate scenarios based off of who makes it to each round? Because if two candidates are close, like Begich and Palin kind of were, it's feasible either one could be the, in the final matchup. But it's way more fun because I like it when I can't just follow the historic rules and I have to take some gut check decisions. Thank you, Logan Phillips. Logan, tell everybody about your website one more time and t- tell them what you have in store for them in the near future. So what we do at Race to the White House, race to the WH.com, is we try to make it as easy as possible for people that are, you know, smart and following politics to know what's going on in their country, or if you're not American, to know what's going on in the States, right? So the goal I have is in addition to predicting elections well, to make it as clear and accessible as possible and fun to use and interactive. So we're going to be breaking down the predictions as we start to build more of these forecasts out. We'll be out way earlier than everyone else, probably by February, we'll have our Senate model out showing you how likely it is for each state to flip, you know, what's going on in each of the primaries, how the general election will change based off of who the matchups are. We're also already have our 2024 primary polling up, our, our Senate polling up. I'm really excited about this. We launched yesterday and I'm excited about it because we found a way to get not just the general election matchups in there, but also what's the primary polling and the favorite ability rings for each candidate. So you won't find that anywhere else on the internet, but race to the White House. We, we are tracking already the polling for the 2024 GOP primary where DeSantis is almost tied with Donald Trump already. And we have a bunch of other things going on there soon. So keep track of it as we get closer to the general election. We'll have a primary election forecast and all sorts of new goodies that haven't fully decided what's going to be up there. But last time we had over 100 interactive features by election day in 2022. So we'll we'll have a ton of new and exciting things up there very soon. It's race to the wh.com. And if you guys had any questions you weren't able to ask, I love responding to people on Twitter. Even if you just shout me out or send me a PM, I'll probably answer. So uh, that is just Google. I, I think it's Logan R2WH is my Twitter. Yeah. So it's been such a pleasure talking to you guys. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you follow the site. Again, thank you for coming on to the coming on to the podcast. Please give him a follow also on the app because then he might actually come back again. Logan, we'd love to have you back on, on a future show. Maybe you should be our soothsayer, our election forecaster guy. But the very last question is, looking at the entrails of American politics, or is it the, the tea leaves of American politics, you have to stick your neck out, right? And let's just say, I'm going to give you two scenarios. It's Biden up against DeSantis, Biden up against Trump. What's going to be the outcome in either race? Okay, so I am not one of those people that thinks that Trump has no chance of winning. I think as everyone was overrating the Trump wing of the party, and now I think they're starting to underrate them. 
but I do think that Trump would be at a disadvantage. My theory is that he'll lose by about five and a half points right now if I had to guess, which I do now, right? And so that is my guess. I think that the, you know, Trump used to have his finger a lot more on the pulse. I don't think voters want to hear about shredding the Constitution. I don't think GOP voters want to hear about that. And that could make 2024 a little rockier for him than he'd hope. He's way too focused on it. And that's what happens when you surround yourself by people that are yes men versus, you know, hitting the road all the time and talking to regular voters, which is what he used to do. So, you know, Biden's approval isn't great. Incumbent presidents tend to do a little bit better when people who've lost an election run again. I was looking hard on this in the past. There's only like eight examples since the Civil War, but they do about a point and a half worse or so, too. So I think five and a half is a good place to place that right now, which might mean the same results plus North Carolina for Dems. But I could easily be wrong. I'd say Trump would have at least a one in three shot then, or at least a one in four minimum. DeSantis, Biden is a lot harder. My instincts say DeSantis would be slightly favored. My data says that Biden would be slightly favored. DeSantis is leading the polling right now. I think the youth contrast would be helpful. But Biden's approval rating is already starting to go up after the midterms, as often happens. He had a great midterm, which does have some predictive. You know, my model would say based off of that, that he is probably on track for about a 4% to 4.5% popular vote victory. If it was against DeSantis, DeSantis is up by 4% in the polls. Those leads don't really mean that much this early on, though, historically. So I guess I would say that Biden is slightly favored. And, you know, that that primary will probably be rough on DeSantis, even if he... And then, you know, if Trump runs as a third party, I think you can say Biden is a heavy, heavy favorite. You know, this happened before when F. Teddy Roosevelt, one of the most popular presidents in American history, really didn't like his Republican successor, Taft. And so he decided to run, lost him in the primary, decided to run in, as an independent. You know, as great of a president as he was, ego was driving him a little bit too much on that. And while he successfully finished above Taft, he was still down by like over 15 points to the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, right? I think you'll see the same thing if Trump runs. I think it could end up keeping both for, you know, maybe voters are a little bit more, paying more attention now. So whichever one's in first ends up getting more of the vote. But the other one's at least going to get 5% worst case scenario, I think. So that would probably be enough for Biden to win, even under a situation where Biden's doing terribly. So if Trump runs again, you'll be looking into the prognostications of the bull moose party and, uh, and its primaries then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. To a point. I mean, you know, it's only one we got, but not, you know, we're out of the 1920s, 1910s, so we got to use some more recent stuff too, but that's the only gotcha. evidence we have. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, that's been us. And that's been me, Royful Brown, with Logan Phillips and with Mike Donahue, Rhys Fink, Abby S, Marshall Rankin, L Normo, and with Aaron Fisher talking about how America, how the American poll industry works through the lens of the website Race to the White House. Don't forget, folks, we are putting out a lot of content. Please, if you are a listener of the podcast and you are listening either in the audience or at home, we beg and implore you, go onto Apple Podcasts. The link, if you are in the room, is at the top of the page. Go and write us a review. It's really important because that does then expose more people to Mid-Atlantic. What Mid-Atlantic is, is a compare and contrast of US and UK politics. Sometimes we do one show which looks at one side of the Atlantic. Sometimes it's the other and then other times we mash the two together. This has obviously been one of those solar shows where we've just looked at US politics. But we, what we are all about is civil discourse and dialogue. We don't demonize our right-leaning brothers and sisters, but we do say left to center politics is right-thinking politics because it, it is more inclusive. However, sometimes we do have to listen to dissenting voices, to other voices. If nothing else, it helps us to sharpen our own 
arguments. But also, you know what? Sometimes we can learn. So we don't demonize the other. We try and break bread with our right-wing brothers and sisters because that's fundamentally what the Commonwealth, what democracy, what the space of discourse is all about. That's been me, Royful Brown. Look after yourselves. Take care of your loved ones. Toodle pip. Bye-bye.